You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us together open our Bibles. We turn this morning to the New Testament and to the Gospel according to Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 35, and our reading ends at verse 53. Here in Luke 12, we hear the Lord Jesus say, among other things, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord... Are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place for the unbelievers. That servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what his master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on there will be five in one family, divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the next verses of Luke 12, going into verse or chapter 13 to the end of verse 9. Again, the Lord Jesus said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is 
Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled to him on the way, or he may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, it happened on Monday, May the 12th, 2008. Professor Van Dam, Reverend Dong, and I had just finished our first full day of teaching in Beijing. And at about 5.30 p.m., we jumped into a cab and were surprised there was so very little traffic. Usually, Beijing is a city with wall-to-wall cars and other contraptions but not on this day. The taxi driver turned around and asked, Did you feel the earthquake? Earthquake, we replied. What earthquake? You see, we had felt nothing on the second-story building that where we were teaching. However, in Beijing, and especially in the city's skyscrapers, there had been this strange, swaying sensation. And as a result, a massive evacuation was ordered and everyone was told to go home early. On returning to our hotel, we learned more about the powerful earthquake and the devastation it had caused. And as many of you know, this Chinese disaster followed close on the heels of another massive disaster, namely the typhoon that struck Burma or Myanmar. And also there are tens of thousands of people died, and overnight millions became homeless, and a crisis of gigantic proportions was unfolding. And as if those two disasters were not enough, there was a third when a great number of tornadoes rose up in the American Midwest. And again, the damage was extensive, and the casualties were numerous, and the suffering was great. 
And one couldn't help but think that of late, life on planet Earth has become a rather precarious and fragile affair. You just never know when your country, your province, or your home will be on the receiving end of the destructive forces of nature. But is that all that there is to it? Are we, as we live on earth, just pawns in the hands of unknown forces that can strike at any moment or at any place? And is it just a matter of pure luck or absolute chance when you escape or are exempt? Many people think so. They see what has happened in China, Burma, and the United States, and they thank their lucky stars. And meanwhile, they live in the fear that one day their luck may run out, and they may be next. And also here on the west coast of Canada, we wonder and we worry about when the big one is coming. For many people, it's all about the odds. Well, what about us as Christians? How do we look and react to all of these things? And indeed, we may ask ourselves, is there a biblical perspective on these things? And is there a message for us in all of this? Well, there is. It's found in many places in the Bible. And one of them is our text of this morning. I preach to you on the theme, a time like this is for listening carefully to the words of our Savior. He tells us that interpretation is needed. Repentance is required. Opportunity is given. Love well, of it here in Luke chapter 12, it's rather obvious that the Lord Jesus is speaking about the coming days. In the verses 4 and 11, he speaks clearly about the coming persecution. In verse 15, he warns against greed and thinking that the future consists in the abundance of things we accumulate. In verse 22, he indicates that worry is not the right way to respond to future concerns. And in verse 35, he advises his followers always to be ready for service, to keep their lamps lit, and to be alert. And in verse 49, he says that he's come to bring fire on the earth. And in all of this, you can sense that the Lord Jesus is preparing his followers for the coming days. They're going to be turbulent days, testing days, hard days, distress days. And so, beloved, when bad things happen on planet Earth, should we really be so surprised? Have we not been warned over and over again by Christ Jesus and others that we should expect these things? And indeed, should we not be surprised by the fact that there are, in a way, not more calamities and disasters? Ever since the fall into sin, creation, says Paul, has been waiting in expectation. It has been subjected to frustration. 
It has been hoping to be liberated from bondage to decay. You see, there's something wrong with our planet. And every typhoon, every earthquake, every tornado testifies to that fact. But then you can also see the Lord Jesus does more than predict that his people will have a troubled life on a troubled planet. He also tells us that all of this is building, building to a climax, to a crisis. History is not standing still. Our world is not just spinning around in, in circles. It is all going somewhere. And as it is going somewhere, what should we as believers be doing? Our text holds up a number of things. In the first place, we should become good students of the times and the seasons. You'll notice our Lord uses a farming analogy to underscore this. He says that farmers know how to interpret the weather. They see a cloud rising in the west and, and they know it's going to rain. They, they feel a south wind come along and, and they know that it's going to be warm. And he says, in the same way, you Christians, you followers of mine, you must be able to interpret the things that happen in this world. And to that end, does the Bible not give us a list of the signs of the times? Perhaps you remember what they are. What will happen before the Lord returns? Among the signs we have that the gospel will be preached to all the nations. That there will be great tribulation in the form of persecution and martyrdom. Many false prophets will arise. Wars and famines will increase. The Antichrist will come in one form or another. The conversion of Israel will happen, although some dispute this. And then, too, there is the matter of natural disasters. They may take the form of earthquakes, floods, tsunamis, hurricanes, typhoons, and whatever other horror you can think of. Yes, and all of these things, all of these things, says the Lord Jesus, are, are pointers, they're signs, they're indicators. And we're supposed to know them. And to reckon with them. But do we? It's obvious that in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ, many did not. Even though he talks about them time and time again, they didn't get it. That's why he calls them hypocrites. They know how to interpret the weather. But they don't know, he says, how to interpret the present time. And what about us? Are we like that? Are we the kind of people who can interpret the ups and downs of the economy, but who are utterly clueless when it comes to interpreting the times in which we live? 
Just what kind of students of the times are we? Do we see what's happening in our Western world, in our country, and even in our province? And everywhere there's this rising tide of humanism and secularism and materialism. Well, people may not deny the existence of God, but they sure deny the authority of God. People live for themselves, their own pleasures, according to their own invented agendas. They want nothing to do with moral codes or moral standards. Our society is awash in drugs and alcohol and sex and selfishness. And marriage vows are so often empty. And family structure is so often lacking. And beloved, we need to see this. I'm not saying that we need to fixate on it or let it depress us even though it is depressing. But we need to be aware of this. We need to be keen students of the times in which we live. Astute interpreters of the seasons. Yes, and as we strive to be these things, we also need, in the second place, to live consistent, God-fearing lives. You may have noticed in the verses 57 to 59, our Savior speaks a lot about judges and courts, penalties and prison. It may even seem at first glance as if his words do not fit, as if they don't belong here. But they do. For you see, he's reminding us here that it's possible to be an expert in the times, but yet to separate all of that from one's behavior and personal conduct. And let's face it, we've all met people like that. They can talk up a storm about other people and external events, but at the same time they do not practice what they preach. But that's not what the Savior wants to see in us. He wants us to be good students of the seasons and consistent practitioners of His will. He wants us to be able interpreters and people who live in harmony with their neighbors. We should not be engaging in studying the signs of the times and engaging in legal disputes and confrontations at the same time. Good interpreters are not litigious. We're good at taking other people to court. But then, beloved, if our Lord Jesus calls for good and consistent interpretation from us, you may notice he also calls for something else. For when you turn to the next chapter, chapter 13, what do you read? You read, interestingly enough, about two things that happened in those days. First, we're told that 
Some people told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, for centuries, scholars have been trying to figure out just what is being referred to here. One of the most well-known sources about those days, a man called Josephus, mentions at least five events that may or may not describe this particular incident. But when you look closer at those events that Josephus describes, you find that none of them actually fit the bill. Most likely then, the people are talking about and telling Jesus about yet one more bloody event that happened during the reign of Pontius Pilate. And there were many of them. Violence and revolt were common. And hence all we can say with accuracy is that there was a confrontation between the Romans under Pilate and some Galileans. And this confrontation probably had something to do with sacrifice in one way or another. And the result was that many people died. You'll notice another mysterious incident is also mentioned. This time, it are not the people who tell it, but Jesus who brings it to the fore himself. Apparently, a tower was being built in the southeast part of Jerusalem called Siloam, and it collapsed. And the result was that 18 people died. So why did these disasters happen? Why were all of these Galileans and these workers at Siloam killed? No doubt the Pharisees, being Pharisees, said that the Galileans had died because they resorted to disobedience and violence against Rome. And no doubt the Zealots were saying that the tower workers had died because they were working for the Romans. And so you can see the people were busy trying to figure out why these bad things had happened in Israel. And that's not unusual. You may recall when tribes, trials and tribulations happened to Job, his his friends came and, and they tried mightily to unravel the reasons for his suffering. And what conclusion did they come to? It had to be Job's fault. And what conclusions did most Israelites come to? Well, it had to be the Galileans' fault. Or it had to be the Siloam workers' fault. But does the Lord Jesus agree? Notice what he says in verse 2. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? And you can add to the list, can't you? Do you think that Job was a worse sinner than the other men of his day? 
You think that all those Chinese people who died in the earthquake recently were worse sinners than the rest of the people living in China or in other parts of the world? Or what about those Burmese? Do you think that they too perhaps were getting just what they deserved? Are those Americans in the Midwest? Was that too something that they deserved? You see, so often when bad things happen to people, we look for causes. And often we're quick to assign blame. And we say, they're just getting what they deserve. But now the question, does the Lord Jesus agree with that kind of reasoning? Does he trace disaster back to personal fault and blame? What's his answer? Well, I think his answer is rather clear and direct and unequivocal. Twice he says, I tell you no. Our Savior denies the connection. And he says that these disasters cannot be linked to personal irresponsibility or guilt. He denies that these people got what they deserved. And then he adds these remarkable words. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. What's he doing? First, I would say he's not allowing anyone to come away from these disasters which he mentions or any other kind of disaster with a smug kind of attitude. Some who call themselves Christians always seem to think they're a cut above the rest. Or else they buy into the simplistic idea, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and because good things happen to me, I'm good. What a simple or simplistic way of looking at life. And our Savior denies that approach totally. But in the second place, he does something else. He makes it crystal clear that in God's eyes, we are all, by nature, by origin, by desert, sinners, headed for a sure and certain destruction. And that the only way for any of us to avoid this lies in, in one word, and the word is repentance. But unless, he says, you repent, you too will perish. But simply then, by nature, we're sinners. That's what Jesus says. That's what 
Paul says and makes so clear in Romans chapter 3. That's what the gospel teaches over and over again. And how does one deal with one's sins? Not by pointing fingers at others. Not by accusing others of being worse sinners than you are. And not by intimating that they are getting what they deserve. No, it's by acknowledging that we all live lives that are out of step with the will of God. Lives that deserve punishment. That we all need to repent. Which means to have a change of heart and mind and will. And if we do, thanks to the great power of the Holy Spirit, we shall live, truly live. But if we do not, we shall perish. So what message does our text have for the world? Is it saying Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? No. It's saying, repent of your sins. Believe in Christ. Enter into the joy of his kingdom. And isn't that a message that rings out loud and clear and In the Gospels, for example, as well as in the book of Acts, when the people asked Peter on the day of Pentecost, brothers, what in the world are we going to do? And Peter doesn't say, don't worry. Peter says, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. So there you have it. In the face of this world and its many disasters, we need to interpret what happens as signs of the times and we need to examine ourselves as to the state of our hearts. And in the midst of all of that, we need to realize and hang on to the certainty that our God is gracious, And merciful. Look at the last part of our text. There the Lord Jesus tells another parable, another agricultural parable. This time it's about a fig tree. Last, however, it's about a fig tree that bears no fruit. And the owner goes and examines the fig tree and, and he never finds any fruit on it. So what does he do? He orders his servant to chop it off, cut it down. And what does the servant who takes care of the fig tree do? Well, remarkably, the servant pleads for more time. More time for the fig tree. Leave it for just one more year. And I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, great. And if not, too bad. Cut it down. What do we have here? In the first place, we have a very patient fig tree owner. 
For three years already, we're told he's put up with a fruitless fig tree. He's given an ample opportunity to mature and produce fruit, yet none is forthcoming. This tree is useless and just taking up space. But then if we have here a very patient owner, we also have here a very dedicated and concerned servant. He really wants that tree to produce fruit. And as a matter of fact, he'll expend extra effort and time. He'll dig around it. He'll fertilize it. Maybe he'll talk to it. He wants to save it and not cut it down. Now, beloved, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to know what this is all about. In the first place, this is about our ever-present and loving, patient, heavenly Father who wants all of his creatures to live fruitful and obedient lives. And in the second place, this is about our concerned, compassionate, and committed Savior who begs for more time for the gospel to be heard and the spirit to work. Indeed, this is all about the Father and the Son saying to this fallen world, there's still time. There's still time to repent. Yet you must keep your eyes on the time, and realize that these disasters that are happening are really, in a sense, wake-up calls. Do not misread them. Do not ignore them. For one day, it'll be too late. And the time will be up. So while you have time and opportunity, run to the Father. And while there is time, embrace the Son. A better world beckons. Do not miss out. Beloved, do you still hear the Father calling you? Even amidst the disasters of today. And are you finding your peace and confidence In Jesus Christ, the great Son of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit. May it be so. May it be so abundantly. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.